My name is Jamie Wolf, and I'm the co-founder and program director of Center for Spectrum Services in Kingston and Ellenville, New York. And I'm Monica Meyer. I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician, and I consult to the Center for Spectrum Services. And Monica and I are pleased to be on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve of the natural products industry is the high cost of supplements. Yeah. Uh, I tried very hard to take the very best supplements that I can, mm -hmm. and uh, that's pretty costly. Mm -hmm. So I wish that they were more affordable as, and still had the same high quality. My biggest pet peeve of the natural products industry is that often products are advertised as the solution when, in fact, there isn't data to prove that. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist and owner of Woodstock Vitamins. If you're looking to supplement your big mouth pharmacist deficiency, check us out at woodstockvitamins.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Woodstock Vitamins, and you can find us on Twitter doing our sarcastic thing with the username at NoBSVitamins. More importantly, though, if you want to talk to me about something, I'd be happy to. Email me at podcast at woodstockvitamins.com, and I will read it over and probably incorporate it into the show somehow. Today's show, we have a double feature, two lifelong professionals who have dedicated their lives to caring for children on the autism spectrum. Jamie Wolf is co-founder and program director of the Center for Spectrum Services. For over 40 years, the Center for Spectrum Services has provided model programs for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families. Jamie is an appointed member of the Special Education Advisory Panel to the New York State Commissioner of Education. And if that wasn't enough, she produced and directed The Asperger's Difference, a film for and about young people with Asperger's syndrome, and served on the National Advisory Board of Autism Training Solutions. Jamie consults and presents nationally on best educational practices for students with autism spectrum disorders. And joining her is Dr. Monica Meyer. She's a developmental behavioral pediatrician right here in Woodstock. She enjoys seeing patients and being challenged by many children and adolescents who are on the autism spectrum. For more than a decade, Dr. Meyer has been a consultant specialist for Jamie and the Center for Spectrum Services. Now, Dr. Meyer has an extensive clinical background in pediatric and adolescent medicine, as well as academic and administrative appointments with an active professional career dating back to 1975. She's consulted with numerous government departments and initiatives around pediatric development. I thought I was busy, then I looked at both of these women's CVs. I am one lucky duck. These two are my neighbors. They live in my community, they perform these amazing roles, and are leaders in this space right here in my backyard. I'm honored to have them on my show to have a discussion around autism spectrum disorders, specifically addressing the myths and misinformation that bombards the very vulnerable patients and their families. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation. So what was it like in autism and the spectrum disorders when both of your careers started? Susan Buckler and I started Center for Spectrum Services in 1976. Uh, it was called the Children's Annex in those early years. And we had both gotten master's degrees in uh, universities and had had about 15 minutes devoted 
to autism under exceptionality. <laughs> a whole 15 minutes. A whole 15 minutes. <laughs> and we knew more than many, so that was even scarier. Yeah. Uh, early In our early years, we had a couple of students that learned very differently than the students we were accustomed to teaching. Yeah. And uh, we were frankly perplexed by one of the students who was actually losing language uh, quite rapidly and another who never developed it. And we worked with the families to get a, a diagnosis, and it wasn't easy in those days. We had to search long and hard. And in our effort to advocate for them and learn about their needs, we discovered autism in a, in a more practical, personal, and professional way. And it was those two students, basically, that brought us on the path, which eventually led to our specialization in treating autism uh, spectrum disorders educationally and clinically in our programs. So I'm not really good at math. How long have you been doing autism-related diseases? Oh, 40-something years. So it's fair to say that you've had a, a little bit of experience since then. Uh, so just I, just to really put that out there for the listeners to understand that there is a lot of modern stuff around autism, but really the reason I brought you two in is because of the breadth of expertise, but also the, the years and the time, and you've seen this whole landscape change so dramatically. So right. how about you, Dr. Meyer? What was it like when you first started uh, this whole thing? Well, I remember profoundly in medical school being taught that the cause of autism was refrigerator mothers, meaning mothers and parents who lacked emotional warmth and caused this disorder in their children. Refrigerator mothers? I've literally never heard that term before. Yeah. So what does it mean that they're big or that's because they're cold, right? I got, the, I got it now. Yeah, yes. okay. Yes. So they're cold and they're, they're uh, um, lacking emotion. I understand. So, um, so that was the, the official cause back then. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. And it was felt that a solution was a parentectomy, which meant removing the child from this uh, cold, uh, unconditional, non-conditionally loving parent situation and put in institutional settings. Wow. That's, uh, I guess we could say that the misinformation has been kind of a long-term process for this whole disease and disorder. So, right. so now, yes. so what's it like today um, uh, as a practitioner of autism um, and uh, a caregiver and such? So what, what is it like and how, how different do you feel it, it is? Well, I think one of the biggest differences, if we can continue with the idea of refrigerator parents, mm -hmm. is that we are fully aware that parenting does not affect the incidence of autism and that having a child with autism is an extremely complicated, often painful journey for a parent. And to fortunately not blame them for it is... Uh, definitely where we want to be as professionals and people who support the autism community. Yeah. So that's one very big difference. Yeah. Uh, and of course, now with the research uh, coming in because of the increased incidence particularly, yeah. uh, we have many different puzzle pieces uh, revealed about the causes of autism, the parts of the brain that are affected, uh, educational strategies that are effective in treating people, uh, with autism spectrum disorders, and it's really an incredibly different environment that we're working in very happily. Great. And I'd like to say a little bit more about that refrigerator mother concept. Yeah, I remember so. seeing my very first patient 
with autism, and the mother was loving and caring and more devoted than many, many mothers. And I said, huh, something's unusual here, only to find that it wasn't unusual at all. And in fact, I think the parents of children with autism as a group tend to be more devoted, more involved with their children, yeah. if anything, than the population of parents in general. Yeah, I've, I've got a very, very limited experience help, you know, helping all you guys out over the years. Uh, I've been a practitioner here for 15 years now and working with the population. And I'll say that. that and, and so that is my concern. My concern uh, here is that, like, uh, I believe that because of the nature of the disease and the social stigma around the disease and, and the fears that people are, uh, can be manipulated, um, their desperation can be taken advantage of. And that is not just true for this population, but, you know, a lot in the natural products industry. So, um, you know, especially because there's no real definitive answers. We have ideas much better than obviously we did when you both first started. Um, and, I the thing the reason that I wanted to have this conversation is because I've seen the supplement bills and I've seen the consultation fees that people are paying from quote unquote practitioners uh, that are offering um, uh, you know these amazing therapy modalities that will definitely cure autism and and all of that. So my purpose here is to address this information head on if we can and. I've always been the one to attack the system, obviously not the people, uh, because the people, as you're saying, are very de devoted and, and want the best for their children, so they'll try anything. Exactly. But unfortunately, there's a lot of charlatans out there that are uh, you know, kind of taking advantage of that. So we're going to like advocate for the consumers here when we talk about this. And I think that we can all agree probably by the end of it that you can use a wellness approach, a holistic care model for this without being misleading, you know? And um, so you guys have devoted your entire career mm. to this uh, and your professional lives to giving your best. So um, let's talk about then how has combating misinformation been a part of your practice and, and has that increased over time? Well, one of the things we discovered very early on is that as a day program for children on the spectrum, we had an amazing opportunity to work with families. And so uh, our philosophy has been since our early years that parents are partners in our educational approach. And so they're with their child more than we are. And if we can work consistently and in unison with them, then we're going to see better results. So mm -hmm. one of the first uh, things that we've done and made central to our focus is uh, educating parents we do a lot of comprehensive parent trainings on a regular basis and uh, have parents come observe and uh, replicate or help us develop behavioral strategies that they can use in the home. So that's, that's one of the, of the ways we've increased understanding. Secondly, we do a lot of outreach to schools and other agencies. We consult to public schools. We run trainings and workshops in the fall and the spring. And we've just started, this will be our second year, of a summer autism intensive mm -hmm. for professionals who work in public sector programs particularly to come and learn about research-based strategies in educating students with autism. And there have been a lot of good research in educational techniques. 
And so there's a body now of educational strategies that we can use that have been shown to be effective. And it's very important that programs that work with this population understand these strategies, use these strategies, and know how to teach others how to use them. Right. So you're, it's obviously advocating a holistic model, meaning the holistic, the everybody involved, any, any touch point, educators, family members, uh, healthcare practitioners. So then from the diagnosis side, the, the physician side, how is the information and combating misinformation increased or changed for you over time? Well, because I think it's very important that parents be partners, I don't say if a parent comes in with a belief in something that I have not found to work, I don't say this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, and I wait, work with the family, and over time, generally, they abandon what seem to me to be mythologic yeah. cures. Mm-hmm. Um, I do say to most parents that I don't know of anything that is a cure for autism yeah. today. But but that's not what the internet says at all, you know, uh, right. and, and right. that is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, we talk about some of the research going on that hopefully over time is going to make a difference mm-hmm. in terms of treating the basic autism per se. Mm-hmm. But I generally say what we do treat and what we can treat are comorbidities that are very common. In yeah. Autism. So diseases associated with autism. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so um, before we unpack that, I guess the I guess the idea here is that as a practitioner, it is very easy to be dismissive when you hear something that isn't evidence based. That it seems a little hokey, a little weird. That you know something that could have been written on a blog uh, without any consequence. It's very easy to just say no, that doesn't work, or mm-hmm. I don't. You know, like that's stupid and really put down the the people that are, are interested in these approaches. And, and this is where I felt like uh, healthcare practitioners have failed in general. We could be leading the holistic movement. We could be leading wellness care and such, but uh, you know, we take this approach of being dismissive. So I think it's important for people to hear that the, the be- I think the best doctors that you can work with are the ones that aren't dismissive, that uh, will allow you to experiment. But that experimentation has to have objective measures and it has mm-hmm, to have, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of endpoint that we're looking for. And, you know, we can rap all day about supplements and like how to choose the best one. But I mean, the idea here is that that the philosophy has to be uh, not just like set it and forget it. And I'm going to take 15 different things at one time and, and all of that. So we're going to I'm going to definitely attack that. So first and foremost, let's talk about one myth that has come up quite a bit. Autism is on the rise. Um, is that a myth or is that true? Um, go ahead. I think it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's three reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is that we're much better at diagnosing. Some of them are good reasons. Yes. Which is uh, high functioning autism wasn't even recognized until the 1990s. Uh, and now it's included in the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorders. Yeah. So those individuals were n- were never counted in the early years, yeah. and uh, or were misdiagnosed with schizophrenia oh, wow. or, or mm-hmm. some other um, mental illness. Uh, so that's one reason. The second reason uh, is um, we're doing earlier diagnoses, mm-hmm. and that's very exciting because early intervention is one of the best strategies for improvement yeah. because the brain is still so receptive to learning at early years. Uh, so another good reason. And then there are the environmental factors that uh, play uh, in complicated ways with genetic predisposition that create probably increased uh, autism. And it's that area that I think we're still scratching our heads about and and learning more about 
and the research is coming in in puzzle pieces. Yes. So we don't have a full picture yet of, mm -hmm. of what those environmental factors are. We're learning a, a little bit at a time. Well, I think the numbers are very stark, and so that we should present those numbers today. And the most recent study by the CDC, which which looks at cohorts of children around eight years of age in 11 different communities to come up with the, the population estimate. And the population estimate today is one in 59. Wow. Um, and, and just in contrast with that, in 2007, that same statistic was one in 150. Huh. And the reason I present this as a myth is because a lot of the people that feel like they are having a more intellectual discussion about it will often discredit the change in the numbers. They'll say that because of the earlier intervention and the expanded diagnoses, that's why the numbers have increased, not actual more cases. It's the same number that it's always been. It's just that we have better methods. So um, to hear that it actually is an increase, uh, that, that's an important myth on the other side of the coin I think we should definitely address. There are small studies that do show an increased risk of autism based on certain environmental factors like pesticides or high magnetic fields. Yeah, and you know we live in a chemical soup. That's what I kind of tell everybody. On the wellness journey, obviously, removing all of that and slowing down the technology is is important because you know as we've been able to create these like Franken foods with all of these crazy chemicals, we've obviously been putting ourselves into the line of fire of these diseases that we don't really understand. And again, the idea that it's on the rise stokes fears, uh, and then that's what sells people on a mindset, and that's a real problem for me, I believe. Um, is that, uh, you know, because there's an increased incidence because of all these things that you've highlighted, then the, they start licking their chops and they start saying, oh, it's, it's, this is the boogeyman and this is a big problem and you're going to suffer from it and there's a really high likelihood. So you need to do my mindset, my problem, my, you know, my, my problem-solving technique for autism. So let's get into the big one, the, the big boy, vaccines and autism. So I'm not going to say anything until the end. So I want you guys to, to unload on this one, if you don't mind. Well, the terrible year was 1996, when a study got published in The Lancet, a very well-respected British journal, in which the writers, there were 12 in all, stated that the MMR vaccine seemed to contribute to both autism and colitis. The study appeared to be, it was a small study, but it appeared to very be- Very small study. Yes, tw mm -hmm. 12. 12, 12 people. children. Mm -hmm. But it appeared to be substantive in that the 12 people presumably were a series of 12 children who came into a clinic so that they were not handpicked, but in fact were sequential. Right. The study was debunked and retracted totally by The Lancet in 2010. Way too long. Yes. There had been some earlier questions, but it was totally retracted in 2010. And showed that the study, in fact, was fraudulent and that the children had not been randomly selected or sequentially selected. They were a group of 12 children whose parents already had concerns and were planning to sue the vaccine industry. Yeah. So they were very much a hand-picked population. That and he had a financial motivation as he was trying to sell an individual measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine himself, and he had financial stakes in it. So, yeah, I mean, so it was very clearly debunked, but it did fest around for a while and bad news spreads quite quickly. So, Well, and especially when you have this devastating illness, you want to do all that you can to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And so parents grasp that and, and many, I think especially because measles, mumps, rubella are not as frequent as they were years ago. And so people felt safe 
not getting vaccinated, not yeah. vaccinating their children. Our practice was 2006 is when we opened. So we sold a lot of individual MMR vaccines mm-hmm. because of what was going on at the time. But then around 2010, when this got debunked, uh, Merck stopped producing the individual vaccines. So, And Thamara saw the mercury additive was removed in the United States from the vaccines, which was, you know, eventually was considered uh, in this myth, the culprit mm-hmm. as well. But there's been recent uh, research that has once again brought it very clearly in focus that the vaccinations do not cause autism. Right. So there have been population-based studies for a long time, ever since people did not believe that this myth was true. And the most recent was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, another well-respected medical journal, just a couple of months ago. And it was a study conducted in Denmark a 12-year study of every child born in Denmark for, for this from 1999 through 2010, mm-hmm. showing no increased incidence of autism mm-hmm. in children who were vaccinated, and also showing that if there were siblings of children with autism who were then vaccinated, they had no increased incidence based on being vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty well beat up and established that vaccines have no correlation to any disease and they're extremely safe. We've written a blog article about it around the flu shot that ends up being pretty popular. And what we say about vaccinations for children, obviously, those those diseases uh, need to be addressed and need to be uh, done early as soon as possible because we have now measles outbreaks in this country, which right. is an insane thing to me. Measles, of course, resets your immune, uh, your immunological profile. So you will actually get sick again from diseases that your body's already learned, you know, to, to fight. So, And I'd like to just make a comment from a school perspective. Yeah. Uh, a 5% decrease in vaccinations triples the measles occurrence. And they've had pretty significant outbreaks of measles now in Rockland County, New York, mm-hmm. in Washington State, and in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's alarming for those of us in school settings because, of course, these kinds of diseases can spread very easily with a lot of children together. Yeah. And New York State now is considering legislation to uh, eliminate the religious exemption because no major religion, uh, including Judaism, uh, feel that vaccinations are against their their religious tenets. Of course not, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really not established in a, a religious context to, to not vaccinate. Yeah, I mean, the, the impact of not vaccinating is much more devastating than even a small incidence of the diseases. And that's kind of what I was saying in, in this article. Even if there was a risk of disease, which there is not, and whether that's autism or any disease, the benefit of a vaccine greatly outweighs the that small, small risk. Um, you know, that's the thing that happens with the natural products industry is they downplay all the side effects uh, of that could potentially happen with a natural product and any little side effect that could potentially happen with uh, a traditional therapeutic right through the roof, that's going to happen to everybody. So, so yeah, so the vaccine, so do you deal with this on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? We haven't had any outbreaks of measles, fortunately. I guess more to the the point where the parents refuse to vaccinate because... Yes, yes. And uh, right now, the definition of religious, strong religious beliefs Mm -hmm. is 
very vague. Yeah. So basically, a parent can just write a very loosely worded statement about having strong religious beliefs. They don't even have to refer to the religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, we pretty much have an obligation to approve it unless we want to challenge their strong religious beliefs in some legal way. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's a loophole now. And it's a loophole that parents who have not a full picture of the information of vaccinations and how they have no causal relationship to autism, you know, they're very fearful and they want to control as many factors as they can. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's something that some parents choose to do. And we try to re-educate, but, you know, as we've discussed, it's scary to have a child with autism. It's and- very scary and it's very impossible to beat the misinformation. There are anti-vax groups. Social media has gone through the roof. I really feel like it's the pinnacle of misinformation is this anti-vax movement. The American Association of Pediatricians has actually asked Google and some of the other social media platforms to take some responsibility and remove some of this misinformation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it needs to happen. It's very difficult to re-educate around this, this concept. I just want us to be very careful, though. There are, very, there are small populations of children who should not get live vaccines. And of course. So I, so I mm-hmm. want to be sure that we, when, when people say, no, 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 it's not true that no vaccine can be dangerous, I mm-hmm. want to be sure that we appropriately exclude those very small populations. So a child who is immunocompromised mm-hmm. in some way uh, should not receive a live vaccine mm-hmm. much of the time. Um, but but again, that's a, a really small population. And right. Or it's somebody that has an, a true allergy to one of the components, which exactly. would be documented. That would be the only real two reasons that anybody shouldn't be getting vaccinated. Um, you know, the weird thing to me is, and this is one of the things that gets brought up a lot in the like anti anti-vax discussions is the fact that these children have already have an active diagnosis and then they want to further restrict vaccination if if there's a a a, a correlation there that 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 part of it just doesn't make much sense for me you know you're not going to prevent anything anymore and it's not Mm -hmm. you know it's not going to make things worse of course so you know just the idea of of that uh piece of uh propaganda that they spread is that okay even if they've been diagnosed they still need even more so to not take vaccines that's a real real big problem for me so yes let's talk about what causes autism because that's a big myth too right Right, for sure. <laughs> so what causes autism? I want you to solve all the problems right now. Go. <laughs> um, I wish I could. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what causes autism. And one of the things to always keep in mind is that autism is not one entity. And that's why we now refer to autism spectrum disorders, um, which have a very broad definition intentionally. Mm-hmm. And we think that there are genetic causes for autism, but we know for sure that it is not one gene. Mm -hmm. And we're sure that there are many genes. There are rare cases in families where they've identified a specific genetic area that has led to autism in that family line, but Mm -hmm. those are very rare. In general, we've found literally hundreds of genes that may be involved in causing autism. And it's also not the gene itself. It's whether the gene is, quote, turned on or not. So mm-hmm. many genes that exist are not always active. And right. that's why one person in a family may have an illness 
another person may not. Right. And we talk about this a lot with uh, there's a bit of misinformation about the ability to methylate your B vitamins and how that leads to a bunch of diseases. That's a new um, a bit of misinformation. You can have a genetic abnormality. So your genes don't have to function at 100%. We've evolved to be able to deal with that. So you can have some genes that express as low as 20% and still have normal function. Uh, so it is a much more complicated picture than a one single light switch. It's it's a very, very dynamic picture. Do you have anything to add to that, Jamie? Or? Well, that there are other comorbid needs that come with some autism uh, profiles. One of them is digestive tract mm-hmm. problems, about yeah. 25, maybe even more than 25% of those de- identified with autism spectrum disorders may have digestive problems. Chicken or the egg, though, because a lot of people will say it's because their gut's out of line, that's another myth I have written here, that they get autism. Well, the chicken or the egg can be also said for changes in the brain. Mm -hmm. Is it the changes in the brain that create the autism, or is it the autism that creates the changes in the brain? Mm -hmm. I think we still have a lot to learn. But, uh, you know, other problems that come along with, you know, autism with some uh, individuals are sleep disorders. Mm -hmm. You know, a large percentage of those students, of our students, have those problems, problems with food selection and narrow food selection. And there's a, an expression that you hear a lot in the field, which is if you know one child with autism, you know one child with autism. Mm-hmm. And I think that really speaks to the incredible diversity of the spectrum. Right. And the incredible diversity is probably caused by the multiple etiologies right. that exist. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite things that you said is that it's not the cause, it's a cause, you know, so it's not, there's one, not one thing that we can pin this to, but a multitude of things that manifest in so many different ways and so many different unique individual cases. Um, so here's, uh, something that I found. So before I prepare by Googling, anytime I write any content, I Google just the, the terminology just to see what people say. And I normally, uh, judge the craziness of the topic and how manipulated that people can be by the number of these sites that come up that are like not legitimate scientific sites, of course. So of course, I typed in autism, natural treatment. And one of the things was that uh, a very well known and published quote unquote doctor that said a toxic environment triggers certain genes in people susceptible to this condition and research supports this position. So he's definitively saying that it is just an environmental thing that turns uh, genes on in the brain that causes autism. And this is what people are seeing. And especially people that are searching for answers, like the answer that we don't know, or it's complicated isn't enough, you know, and it feeds this kind of system. How about this? The idea that the baby has the inability to detoxify. Um, They have uh, poor functioning liver, so heavy metals and environmental things accumulate in their body. Have you heard of this one before? I don't think I stumped you guys, did I? (laughs) Well, I I actually have heard of it, Mm -hmm. you know, and and Mm -hmm. it's passed around quite a bit. That one, I think, is, you know, almost in common parlance that heavy metals, you Mm -hmm. know, have some role. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I, I would say I don't have any definitive information that they do or they don't. I think it's one of the other puzzle pieces yet to be solved. Yeah. And the amount of heavy metals when, when measured still turn out to be so tiny. And I don't know that there have been good population studies showing how many people who do not have autism may have slightly elevated levels of those heavy metals. 
What we do know is that the livers, in the general liver function studies that we're able to do routinely, show no difference right. in the population with right. autism and without. Because they'll grab on that heavy metal thing and say that it was a heavy metal exposure and you need all this expensive chelation therapy and, and all of these supplements and such to help out, glutathione being the biggest one right. to help make your liver function better, but their livers are functioning fine. And we've never really compared it against a, a population of kids without autism to see how their heavy metal levels look like and, and such. So. And there are dangers. So there are dangers of chelation. There have been deaths related to chelation itself mm -hmm. being the process of, of eliminating mm -hmm. the heavy metals. Yeah. And something that you, you mentioned earlier, the, the cost, the financial burden that so many families incur mm -hmm. you know, with these kinds of therapies is... Right. is uh, an extra burden on an already difficult situation. Right, because the diagnostics are flawed. So they go to these consultative uh, practices, they spend a lot of money on that, and then they throw all these tests at them that aren't really legitimate tests and methodologies to, and wow, the tests show, oh wow, you have extra heavy metals. Now you need this therapy that we can provide, and we're the specialists in that, and, and then you just kind of keep going down this rabbit hole. Um, and again, the inability to methylate is now the newest thing. Somebody has a, a genetic um, abnormality. You can go to 23andMe, get a, a test, and, and then you can uh, show that, oh, wow, you have a genetic, genetic abnormality, which we know most of us do have that. 40% of us will have mm -hmm. this gene that expresses this incorrectly. And now they're blaming that on um, autism, and they tell uh, children that they need to take high-dose B vitamin combinations in order to, to stop with the symptoms. Um, As Jamie said, though, I, I think that there still remains much to be known. It is possible we're going to figure out yeah. sometime after the present mm -hmm. that some of these um, things are, that heavy metals may play a role. I right. just don't think we know, and we can't say that. Definitively that no, but we can say definitively that we don't know 100%, yes. and we need to be careful about going down those paths Absolutely. because of the costs and the dangers. Yes, exactly right. Mm-hmm. So I could, I, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm getting there, girls, ladies. I'm, I'm getting it. So, uh, so the, uh, so let's talk about treatment. Autism can be cured is what I found on a bunch of the blog articles. How do we feel about that statement? Well, you know, if you had asked me that 10 years ago, mm -hmm. I would have said it was a complete fallacy. Mm -hmm. I now think that the word cured is too big a word mm -hmm. and it's not a clear word what mm -hmm. cured means. Right. And I think that you can have extremely successful treatments that enable a person to live a life that is, uh, and I'm going to use a word we haven't yet used in this conversation. Maybe we can go back to the origin of this word, neurotypical. Okay. Um, so uh, does that mean cured? And if it does, I would say that there are people that have had very impressive success with their progress after mm -hmm. diagnosis and are living lives that one could consider to be, and I'm going to use a word that I don't like very much, normal. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that means cured. Mm -hmm. um, and you do see that autism is different with different people. So very, very, um, uh, people with very significant autism I don't think you get a report of being cured. Mm -hmm. But people who have more of a shadow of an autism spectrum disorder uh, have the potential to improve si significantly. Mm -hmm. And their significant improvement may look like uh, more what we consider neurotypical 
outcomes. So, uh, you know, I think the word cure is a misnomer, and yeah. that and that creates part of the confusion. But to say that autism is curable if you eat the right food or you do the right educational strategy, and there's one path to a cure, and those kinds of things are extremely misleading and false. I would say that I very much agree with that. I would say that in very young children, there, there are kind of two populations I think of as being, quote, cured. Um, one is the population of young children. And I think what happens sometimes, um, autism traits very much overlap with other traits. For example, they overlap significantly in young children with traits of anxiety or traits of ADHD. Um, so you'll have a child who makes very poor eye contact, very little engagement with peers or with adults who may have that poor eye contact and poor engagement because of being very anxious or because of having ADHD and not being able to focus. And those children may indeed lose their symptoms. Yeah. Um, whether they truly had autism to begin with is the question. Mm -hmm. Then in the population that, that I think you're speaking to, Jamie, um, one, of the, one of the key theories of autism is that people who are on the spectrum lack what's called theory of mind. Mm -hmm. The theory of mind is knowing that you have ideas and feelings and beliefs and also knowing that other people have ideas and feelings and beliefs that may be different than yours. And that's one of the difficulties for people on the spectrum is recognizing, is having a theory of mind. It's, mm -hmm. it's thought to be a deficit. And it's also thought to be the reason why people on the spectrum don't have empathy. Children who I've worked with who understand how someone else feels, because you can be taught that. It may not come naturally to you, but you can be taught that. If you learn to understand that someone else has feelings that are different than your own, you can have great empathy. And that's true for many children on the spectrum and then many adults. And I think it's, it may not come naturally, but it's being able to learn that concept of theory of mind, that, yeah. that others have feelings and beliefs different than your own that enables people on the spectrum to function in society in a way that, that seems very normal. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think the, it's the verbiage. It's cure. And I think it's meant to elicit that feeling mm -hmm. in people. I, I, again, it's manipulative to say cure to, you know, because any mm -hmm. reasonable practitioner can look at this and say, this isn't something that gets cured. We can move towards, you know, neurotypical or normal, as you can say, uh, and, and with certain treatment protocols and such, because it's so complicated. But there's no going away from this. This is this is who this person is. So I think that it's important to kind of distinguish that. So let's talk about treatment then. Um, so what does treatment look like for you? And, um, you know, how do you treat autism? How's that for a loaded question? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, a growing number of evidence-based strategies that mm -hmm. have shown with careful research design to mm -hmm. show improvements with individuals who have that diagnosis. And Again, because each individual is so different, different combinations of those strategies, different contexts that those strategies are uh, utilized, create different outcomes and different improvement. Mm -hmm. But it's very important when parents are looking for a good program for their child mm -hmm. that they be sure that the, the strategies that are being used are evidence-based. And some, some of those strategies have to do with following the principles of applied behavior analysis, uh, which um, dates back to Skinnerian psychology, but has evolved in very um, humanistic ways of being utilized uh, these days. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy has had some really nice outcomes. Exercise is 
been shown to be very useful in improving students' readiness to learn and ability to learn. Uh, let's see, parent-implemented intervention, so really good controlled uh, involvement of parents in the educational process has very good outcomes. So you know, those are a couple of examples. And I, I just wanted to say something else about theory of mind and um, executive functioning and some of the other deficit areas that we see with autism. You know, I've been doing some reading research, uh, recently about context blindness, mm. which is uh, a theory that's coming out of Europe about uh, looking at autis autism and the way people with autism learn. And that uh, because some of the research now is showing that it's the neurotransmitting connections between parts of the brain that seems to be atypical uh, with autism, it would seem that these the ability to process different contexts might contribute to the fact that the rigidity in learning, the failure to generalize, yeah. the uh, failure to understand facial expressions, uh, different social milieu misunderstandings. So I think education focusing on contextual learning, mm -hmm. teaching how there's no one way a face looks when you're sad or happy. You know, what are the circumstances that might create people to feel differently in different situations? And I think, you know, that's very interesting to me as an educator to start focusing um, as much as possible on different contexts and teaching students to identify how things can change mm -hmm. in different contexts and so more flexible thinking patterns. Yeah. So to, to kind of loop back... The idea that there's a single cure or a single treatment is silly, of course, and that's why I bring this up. And from the educator standpoint, there's a lot of uh, treatment around the the behaviors and the practices and the mindfulness and and that kind of thing. So this is a very behavioral based training of not only the children but then the the families that are involved, and that is a lifelong process. Uh, and there are some strategies that are kind of wonky, I'm guessing, and then there are, are some that are evidence-based. Are there any weird treatments that, I mean, without bashing anybody, of course, are there any things out there that you would say, I don't think that people should be leaning this way when they're doing this? Oh, there are lots of wonky treatments. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm, I think I'm going to answer your question slightly different way. Okay. For a while, I'll just go back to the wonkiness for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a, a period of time where we'd call it the treatment of the month. Because okay. it mm -hmm. seemed like there was always like a new flavor that was that was popular, mm -hmm. but for a while there were sort of opposing schools of treatment, you know, uh, and one of the things that I think has brought some of these opposing schools together is recognizing that central to almost every intervention that's successful with students with autism is you have to build a relationship. Mm -hmm. And we call it pairing, mm -hmm. where the child has to see you as the big chocolate chip cookie mm. that they want. That's a great analogy for me. I would do anything for a chocolate <laughs> chip cookie. And, and some of these opposing strategies all had that in common. Mm. And I think that's partly why mm -hmm. um, we don't see so many differences in the research-based strategies anymore, because I think they all recognize, many of them recognize that for any child to learn, they have to feel that it's 
reinforcing for them. Mm -hmm. And for a child who has a reinforcement system, a, a system of likes and dislikes and things that feel good, because remember, the sensory systems of these students are also very affected by their neurological differences. They have to feel like it's comfortable in a joyful way, in a, sensorily, a sensory way, um, in an intellectual way. And so what we need to do is figure out what, what makes learning comfortable and mm -hmm. joyful for these children. And, um, and that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. That's pretty exciting because uh, I haven't met a child that we haven't figured out something that they like right. and that they want. Mm -hmm. And if we can pair that mm -hmm. with things that we would like them to want to learn and like, mm -hmm. then there's a greater likelihood, of course, that they'll, they'll want to learn it too. So then moving to the medical side, uh, from the physician standpoint, what are the treatments? Um, how is it that you're using your expertise to, to, to combat this? And, and before I, I turn to that, I want to talk about some of the research that's ongoing. And I think it's really important that we know that there is much research ongoing mm -hmm. about possible medical or medical-related uh, treatments. Um, one area is um, studies of sulforaphane, and sulforaphane is a chemical that's found in a number of plants, especially broccoli sprouts. Mm -hmm. And um, that's important because many parents have pointed out that when their child has a fever, the child is more able to communicate and doesn't manifest the same behavioral problems that wow. the child may have mm -hmm. when the child doesn't have a fever. There's no complete explanation for that, but we do know that there's a protein that's produced that's like sulforaphane, protein produced in the, in the brain to diminish, it's called the heat shock protein, and it diminishes negative effects of fever. So, so fever, as we know, has, has much important value with the inflammatory process to uh, reduce symptoms of illness, uh, reduce, reduce not symptoms of illness, but um, causes of illness. So mm -hmm. bacteria often die when they're exposed to a high fever. So right. fever is the protective, Yes, so mm -hmm. fever is very protective, but it's not necessarily protect, protective for the brain. So mm -hmm. there's a, a protein produced in the brain that reduces this, um, the shock of fever. And that protein is thought to be what causes children on the spectrum to become more communicative. Mm. And, and that's similar to or just like sulforaphane. So there now is research looking at whether giving sulforaphane in large doses can reduce symptoms of autism and increase social behavior. And at least one study has been positive, yeah. um, but it's a small study, um, and there have been other less definitive studies. Oxytocin is another chemical that's thought to, that oxytocin is in fact the chemical that causes letdown of breast milk, yes. um, but it's thought to contribute to socialization, and there have been studies showing that giving doses of oxytocin, um, which at the moment is only available in a very short-acting nasal form right. and is only available in research, but that that can contribute to social behavior. Not medication, but transcranial magnetic stimulation is a treatment that uh, is being investigated as a possible um, treatment. It's a treatment for many sorts of uh, brain-based disorders, but possibly for autism as well. Yeah. And then I would just say that as we began saying early on, um, children who are children and adults who are on the spectrum have a higher incidence of brain-based comorbidities. Mm -hmm. Uh, anxiety, ADHD, right. and mood disorders. And those are often very 
medically treatable. Right. And and so then that gets into the whole area of treating those other diseases that are associated with it, but specifically to autism, you've just listed a few. And it's really funny as you say those things, they are new and trendy supplements. So yeah, in the supplement space now, there are broccoli seed extracts uh, that are coming and going, not using the right doses. We have a product that has glucofuranin, which is a precursor to mm. sulforaphane, and, and people are really kind of uh, going for that. But you know, the thing that I tell people before they buy that is that it's not the dose, it's not the thing, it's not going to convert correctly. Uh, and there's only evidence in, in very specific situations of it being beneficial. Actually, sulforaphane uh, being uh, studied in cancer studies too as a powerful antioxidant. So, uh, but, so there's something there to eating your vegetables and uh, then using it in these therapeutic modalities is good. But Pitocin, as you said, or oxytocin doesn't work unless it's either infused or or sprayed. So buying an oxytocin pill uh, or liquid is not a a wise decision either. Um, So around the treatments, um, we can talk about the nutritional side of things, uh, which is a big, big proponent. And there's a lot of misinformation there saying that if you just uh, change the diet, then the symptoms will go away. So either one of you want to comment on the nutrition side? Well, I'll start by saying that many of our students have um, very narrow food preferences. Some of them would have really what you call eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so even just trying to give these children a healthy diet, forget Mm -hmm. a diet that uh, has particular characteristics, is extremely challenging. And a lot of the work we do at Center for Spectrum Services is on expanding food preferences. And uh, so that's, that's a, a major, a major uh, emphasis in, in programs for children, especially young children with autism. I have not been able in my observations of my students to observe any clear signs that one particular diet has a clear, favorable outcome. Mm-hmm. And there are several reasons for that. Mm-hmm. First of all, every child's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, we don't have controlled studies. Yeah. Thirdly, they're getting great education, I like to think. So <laughs> if they're making improvement, we you know, can't really just say it's because of one thing. Yeah. So uh, I, I do not take a, a stance on a particular dietary intervention mm-hmm. being curative or helpful mm-hmm. in reducing autism symptoms. But I think you touched on it. it. The first part is the most important part is that the, the navigating the sensory issues and all of the restriction in, in the diet is enough to make people feel bad. And then they don't know how to express that. And uh, I mean, you eat that diet for a week and see how grumpy. You can share those feelings pretty easily. It's very difficult for someone on the spectrum to to communicate these kinds of things. And and clean eating, of course, has great health outcomes and, and mood uh, improvements with just eating five servings of fruit a day. You know, right. we've, we've have all of that data. So, you know, the idea of, of cleaning up the diet is not a not a bad one, of course. And of course, we're going to have some outcomes that will improve. And it's further complicated by the gastrointestinal issues Mm -hmm. because many of our students don't have good oral language Mm -hmm. where they can describe things that are are uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have some students that are extremely constipated, Mm -hmm. so it's hard to know what of what part of their behavior is coming from gas pains, you know, versus Mm -hmm. other, other issues. Uh, And 
And even if, the, if we do know that there are gastrointestinal uh, irregularities, then it's not an easy fix either. Mm-mm. So it's, it's, it's a complicated, it's, it's thick soup is what it is. I would add, though, that because autism is so many different things, I think there probably are individuals with autism who are helped by a particular diet, Mm -hmm. and just as there would be in the population in general. Um, And so uh, for some individuals, a casein-free diet Mm -hmm. makes a difference. For Mm -hmm. others, a gluten-free diet, and for others, a gluten-casein-free diet really does make a difference. So to say that that it's nonsense that particular Mm -hmm. diet may help wouldn't be wouldn't be true. Mm-hmm. Um, as as Jamie said, there are so many challenges though to getting a child um, who has such rigid food likes uh, to take a particular diet can really drive a family mad if they're attempting to do it at a time where their child is very resistant. For a long time, I've puzzled about why there is so rare nutritional deficiency in children who have such limited diets. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that much of our food is already supplemented with vitamins and minerals. But I have to say, just this past year, I saw my my first case of scurvy in a young man who um, has rigid uh, eating patterns and and then researched it. And there have been a few case reports, but indeed case reports of scurvy. So so there is the possibility of nutritional deficiency. And so I'm now a firm believer that it is useful for a child to take a good vitamin supplement. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And not get ripped off there. And that's my that's exactly. my job to exactly. address that. But yeah, I, I agree that the nutrition stuff is such murky water. I mean, in the general population where they can verbalize how they feel, uh, getting to the bottom of why people just feel run down and tired and fatigued and confused and not having their memory. It's all dietary and it's very unique. You talked about gluten-free and casein-free, and that's a big uh, proposed mechanism online is that gluten is the devil. Uh, I've always said that. Everybody believes gluten's the devil. And it could be a, a around a degree you know it doesn't need to be removed completely just reduced because i would assume that these kids are are moving towards um comfort foods uh packaged foods things like that that that's probably easier for them to ingest and tolerate so then they're getting lots of those kinds of uh proteins uh and and so just reducing that in general can can be what what's out there so again just like in the general population is gluten-free the answer? Is it gluten-less? I actually have an immunologist coming on next week to talk mm. about that. So we're going to be talking about pediatric allergies and adult allergies and mm. the gluten-free craze. So hopefully I'll have a better answer for you guys next uh-huh. week. But I mean, yeah, obviously the role of GI disturbances, that's the one thing. It's the gut is what causes a lot of the problems. And I would agree that that's true, that if we don't have control of our gut, regular bowel movements and and the, the, the gut-mind connection, that's another future episode. I've got so many great episodes coming that uh, are connected, obviously, in this population almost more so than others. So, One more thing just to, sure. to add that I didn't say before. Mm-hmm. Also textures yeah. are very big in um, some of our students' uh, dietary choices. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this, the sensory systems of many individuals with autism are, are atypical. Mm-hmm. And what they perceive to be intolerable textures mm-hmm. or, or smells, or smells, mm-hmm. yeah, smells too, um, can truly affect mm-hmm. diet. Mm-hmm. And... Um, really require very careful thinking. One of the myths that I want to kind of discuss uh, is probably uh, along the lines of the idea that you guys aren't trying. Uh, so when you see these alternative practitioners, we have this mindset that they're onto something that the establishment, whether 
that's you guys as a traditional doctor or you as a, a healthcare practitioner and uh, education provider, uh, that you guys are the establishment and it's this anti-establishment stuff that's going to get to the real answer. So I, one of those, that's a big myth, I would say. Um, so the idea here, you guys are looking, right? <laughs> it's not like you wouldn't get very excited if there was a diet or an herbal remedy or a regimen or a protocol that would actually do this. So can you speak to the idea that like of what you do around investigating these um, claims? Uh, because I think that's important for people to know that you're looking at least and, and trying to assign some value to it. Generally, what I do when I hear of, of something that I hadn't heard of before is I try to do a research study to see what research has been done. And uh, almost always, there's very little. Mm -hmm. um, and so the only way to, to be sure that something really works is to do a double-blind controlled study where mm -hmm. you have a population where some people, say we take the autism population, so you take a group of children, um, all of whom are five to 10 years of age, say, and some of them are given the treatment and some of them are not given the treatment. And neither population knows whether they're getting the treatment or not. Mm -hmm. And then even better to switch the groups around. Yeah. And and, and make the groups large enough so you can really de determine what the impact of yes. random chance is. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well said. And, and then, you know, see if there's a difference. And for all of these new cures, there isn't that kind of right. large... Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and we've seen what can happen when we grab onto small studies. Small studies are good. They'll, they'll tell us that there may be an opportunity here. But yes. the Wakefield study of the MMR vaccine was 12 kids. And if we just take that uh, and run with it, then the, the dangers that uh, came uh, as a result, it's, it's a real, real problem. So, Jamie, do you have anything to add about that? Or Well, as an educational institution, we don't prescribe and we uh, we give students diets that the parents have given us physician backup that they must have mm -hmm. or that we get. They get a very nutritious school health uh, lunch program uh, for free mm -hmm. thanks to our tax dollars. Yeah. Uh, so we're not in a position to be giving uh, alternative remedies mm -hmm. and, um, and diets to, to, to individuals based on our own impulses or... or predispositions. And that's sort of a relief mm -hmm. <laughs> because mm -hmm. it isn't clear when we review the literature and, you know, it, there's still so much emerging information. And one of the gifts that's come with the rise in incidence of autism is this richness in research that's, that's happening now and more research dollars being dedicated. And it's an exciting time to be in the field because so much is, is being studied, but it's a very confusing time to be in the field because mm -hmm. so much is being studied. Right. So, you know, I really am always struck by the appropriateness of the puzzle pieces, the international symbol for autism, because it is a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And these pieces are coming in haphazardly, randomly, and they don't all fit together, that's for right. sure. It's like one of those puzzles where you don't even get to see what the picture is. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So um, let's talk one last thing because it's hot and I've talked about it a bunch on my show here and in store and online, CBD oil, right? It's a big thing, huh? It is a big thing, and yes. how do you feel about it? Well, I, I'm cautious because I think we don't know the long-term effects of CBD oil in, mm -hmm. in children mm -hmm. or in anyone. Um, mm -hmm. um, and Besides from the anecdotes of the people in Woodstock that have survived so long with it, right? 
Absolutely. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Um, rarely using just CBD oil alone, though. Yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, however, when a family comes to me and says they would like to try CBD oil, mm-hmm. I am not saying no mm-hmm. um, because I think there is anecdotal data that it that it is unlikely to be uh, dangerous. Um, I think that the THC component of marijuana is the one that's more likely to cause some neuronal issues issues of neuronal connectivity in young people. So um, a number of my patients have tried it and some have had success. Yeah. Um, I think what I generally say to them is that because CBD oil is not FDA regulated, it's hard to know the product that you're getting and important to work at getting a quality product as I know you're working to... to, Yeah, it's impossible. (laughs) We're trying to educate people around this, but if we're concerned about environmental toxins, pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals, that's a perfect storm for a CBD product. Yes. And this is a good story. I don't know if I've shared it on the podcast yet, but I've been saying it loudly in the store. Um, I had a company approach us about private labeling, so meaning putting our label on their product and selling it. And I said, great, send me your quality data. Well, we don't study... Um, heavy metals or pesticides because it costs too much is what they said. And this is like a national brand that's in a lot of different stores. So it's very, very crazy, the um, the discrepancy between a good product and a bad product. I teach people all the time, when you go to a store and you see three different bottles that say turmeric or CBD or whatever, you don't know if they fit into one of three different bins. Like uh, if we want a steak, you know, we're looking for steak. You can't tell if it's a moldy cheeseburger, a cheeseburger from McDonald's or that actual steak, you know, where something could be dangerous or something could be not even that great for you or, or just kind of there, uh, but not really beneficial or that thing that you're looking for the ideal product. So when, when it comes to CBD use with parents, obviously following our guidance around finding a high quality product, but then uh, experimenting because it's going to be a very personalized experience for everybody. And it's not going to, it's not going to do anything except for those comorbidities. Exactly. It's going to help out with anxiety and sleep Mm -hmm. and such, Mm -hmm. but not Mm -hmm. with the actual disorder itself. So. Correct. Cool. So we've talked a lot about kids and autism and spectrum disorders. What about adults? An adult or an older person who is thinks they may have an autism spectrum disorder, can also get a diagnostic evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do them, other mm-hmm. places do them too. Monica, I guess, well, you don't work with adults, but mm-hmm. um, you know, doctors, medical doctors can also give a diagnosis. Uh, and the other thing is that recently I've just become more closely in touch with how very high-functioning individuals on the spectrum are not meeting their potential in their adult years. And and partly they're riddled with anxiety and depression, and and which comes first, the anxiety and depression and the lack of success or the lack of success causing the anxiety and depression. But one of the things that troubles me a lot is that there's no um, money available to these high-functioning individuals because they're so high-functioning to give them what would be a rather insignificant amount of support to make them successful compared to the lifelong support that individuals with more significant autism receive through the Office of People with uh, Mental Disabilities. Persons with Developmental Disabilities. Thank Mm you. Um, So, yeah, we didn't need to say that, but Mm -hmm. it it is something that I'm sort of grappling with because I made a film about individuals on the spectrum, teens, mm-hmm. to self-advocate. And um, I, I got accepted in a film festival in Finland recently. So mm-hmm. I got back in touch with the teens to see how they were doing. And they were all rather remarkable young adults. They all graduated from college with high honors. 
And, um, and they're all not successful in their adult years. And this is 10 years later, 13 years later, actually. Mm. And I, I started, you know, doing more research to see how, if their experiences were common and they're the norm because of the lack of, of resources available and understanding for, for people that are, you know, neurologically different. So that's sort of my, my latest sadness. New York in many ways has taken the, the lead in supporting adults with developmental disabilities. And now um, I've gotten to participate in, in um, movement to have some of my patients, some of my patients with high-functioning autism supported by the Office for Persons with Developmental Disabilities. So I think it's, it's a kind of a, a wave of the future that we have to push to make sure it occurs. Um, but clearly there are, there are, as you've said, Jamie, many people who um, are, are really intelligent, have gone through all of the structured programs which school, traditional school, college provides, but then once they're in the unstructured real world, that's when they have difficulty functioning. And, and we have been able to persuade the Office of Persons with Developmental Disabilities that they are very much a population that needs support in some cases. And, and I think pushing for that on an ongoing basis is critical. It's, it's still wrapped up in a lot of bureaucracy, though, to, to access those funds if you are a, a, high, a very high-functioning individual. So it's, it's, the money is there for the persistent, mm -hmm. sophisticated searcher, but it's, it's not easily available. And a lot of times parents are, are paying out of pocket for services for these individuals if they can afford to. These able people are, are living home with their parents. It's pretty bleak. Yeah. Any. All right. So um, do you have any closing arguments that you'd like to make here uh, before the jury? <laughs> well, uh, no closing arguments, but mm -hmm. I would like to say that any parent who has a concern about the development of their young child mm -hmm. is able to connect their child with a free developmental evaluation. Mm -hmm. uh, if the child is under three years of age, they should call their county of residence. Mm -hmm. All counties have a preschool early intervention department. Uh, or if the child is over three and not yet school age, mm -hmm. they could call their county or their school district and connect their child to a developmental evaluation. We do them, but many uh, agencies in our area do. And we want to just say again, I'm sure Monica echoes me, that early intervention is one of the biggest gifts a parent can give a child who has uh, the symptoms of as autism. As early as possible. Yes. As early as possible. We've benefited from early intervention in our house as well. Um, and uh, I can't say how great the system is and how really the from the bureaucratic side of things, you get worried that it's going to be a, a state or federally sponsored thing. Uh, and it is so helpful. And there's so many great people such as yourselves uh, helping people do this uh, early and often. So, And if your child is shown to have a developmental delay, then the therapies or treatments that they need are also available free. Free to you. Mm -hmm. And so we're very lucky to live in the United States yes. to mm -hmm. have this, this great resource. Mm -hmm. And uh, very much echoing what Jamie said, parents need to trust their instincts. One of the faults, I think, of my profession of pediatrics is that pediatricians tend to be very optimistic. And sometimes when a parent comes in with a concern that a child may have a developmental delay, the pediatrician will say, oh, but your child's going to grow out of it. It's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And there's a delay that is unnecessary. So parents need to trust their own instincts if they feel their child may have some developmental issues. And as Jamie said, contact 
their local early intervention agency. Right. In my mind, management of autism and spectrum disorders uh, holistically differs very little from a true evidence-based model for anyone. Uh, we're controlling for diet, physical activity, sleep, environment, all of the things that you can do. Uh, but the most important thing uh, is if you are going to try any of these therapies that are out there because you want to do the best thing for your child, is that you do so in an objective and honest way. What are we taking? Uh, is it the right product for this child? And what is the outcome that we're looking for? And how long do we monitor for that? And, um, of course, the most important thing for me is the, the top of our wellness pyramid, which is the medical care, bringing in true professional specialists in this and, and getting their opinions as, as soon as possible, because this is a complex problem and uh, it, it is very difficult to be a parent anyway and then <laughs> to be a parent uh, with a, a child with this disorder. It's almost like I, I use the analogy of a business, right? I have friends that are idiots and they have businesses and they do very well. Uh, and then there are other owners that have to really manage that business as tightly as possible and check off every single box of best practices uh, to get the results that that they're looking for. And and sometimes that happens with parenting too. You mm -hmm. have people that get lucky and they have kids that uh, are <laughs> no effort at all. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a, such an easy process for them. And there's others that, whether it's uh, children on the spectrum or uh, early development learning disability type stuff, where they have to just really, really work uh, at it and do the best things. But knowing that there are women like you all across the country, men and women like you all across the country doing this for so long and really leading in uh, in this whole thing that really helps out. So I want to thank you guys for sitting down with me and addressing misinformation around autism and the spectrum disorders. So thank you for coming. It's our pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> That was a great conversation with two lifelong experts in the spectrum disorder space. It's really funny because I see this pattern in the natural products world. You have a disease or disorder that isn't well understood like autism, or you have something happening in your body that isn't clear cut, causing all sorts of like nonspecific symptoms, lack of energy or focus, GI disturbances, whatever it may be. And people, they want clarity. They want a clear cause defined so then they can implement a plan to either treat or prevent something from happening. But some things just don't have that. And I think the most enlightening thing that Dr. Myers taught me is that there isn't one cause and therefore there isn't one treatment for autism and spectrum disorders. As Jamie pointed out, it's really a comprehensive, holistic approach with many challenges. And the biggest challenge being addressing those out there who try to pitch their method or their product as the cure or option. And many times it's solid advice, you know, change the diet, but it's mixed in with snake oil. The wellness pyramid that we've developed here at Woodstock Vitamins isn't very sexy, but it's universal and applies really well to patients with autism and autism spectrum disorders. Lifestyle interventions like better diet, physical activity, behavioral care, and behavioral management comes first and foremost. Supplements do have a place, but we have to be strategic about them. Don't start with five supplements. Pick one, get the right dose, the right form, and then use it for the right amount of time, but then reevaluate. Has this made an impact at all? And if not, get rid of it. Don't keep it around. Don't keep spending money on something that isn't working. So I don't blame people at all for trying anything to help their children, but I'll give both barrels to anyone promising people false hope in the name of profit. That's the end of my little mini rant on autism. So if you want to learn more about our guests, visit their page on our website, woodstockvitamins.com slash podcast. Jamie's website is centerforspectrumservices.org. And Dr. Meyer is at monicameyerdbpeds.com. That's M-O-N-I-C-A. 
M-E-Y-E-R, D as in dog, B as in boy, P as in Paul, E as in Edward, D as in dog, S as in Sam.com. I can't believe I got through that without screwing that up. But that's it for now. So until we speak again, keep listening, keep learning, and be well. 